This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Week 28, mostly working from home, a little bit of the office, but it was full of a lot of stories, Jason, that reminded us once again, getting back to normal, it's not going to be easy. We saw virus cases popping up in New York City, also around the globe. And throughout this pandemic, we've been reminded of so many of the inequalities in our world. And so how timely that this week across the Bloomberg empire, we're talking about equality, the equality issue of Bloomberg Business Week, the Equality Summit held virtually, of course, because that's the world we're living in. We're going to hear some of the key interviews from that summit and talk to the editor of the magazine and some of the key reporters who contributed to that issue. Plus, we've got Vox co-founder Matthew Iglesias on his new book. And if we don't measure this and, and look at it, if companies don't measure it and look at this, we're not going to make progress. We'll hear from former Xerox chairman and CEO Ursula Burns and TPG co-CEO and partner John Winkleried on the importance of more diversity on corporate boards. But first, Carol. It's the cover story about how it's time for a new approach to cure inequality because capitalism, it just isn't cutting it. Check out what Rebecca Greenfield, who leads the diversity and sustainability coverage at Bloomberg, had to say, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Credit to Rebecca, who has done a number of stories for us this year, and I think this is her second cover um, in in this space. And when we sort of started talking to her about how, how we wanted to approach the equality issue, I think she really came at it almost like a little bit of a sequel to her last cover story. And it was the idea that, the last time it was the idea that um, businesses just have a dearth of of, of black uh, or minority CEOs, people of color, um, mm-hmm. and with a really, really provocative uh, cover that showed just how white the Fortune 500 is. And this time, I think it, she went a, even a little bit bigger about this and said, look, like actually the force that companies have been relying on here is the market. The market is supposed to correct things, and it's clue, clearly not working. And e- even more provocative, I think, is this idea that within HR departments, D&I, the diversity and initiative crew, has actually been part of the problem almost. Becca, pick it up from there. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I, yeah, definitely also see it as a follow-up to my last piece. But like Joel said, the driving force behind diversity and inclusion initiatives for the last three decades has been this a market-driven approach. So this idea that, you know, discrimination and inequality is bad for business. Um, you know, you're, you're losing out on productive people if you discriminate against people just because of what they look like. And also there's so much research showing that diverse teams are just better and more productive. And this has been driving the DNI department and, you know, billions of dollars of industry to get more people who are women and minorities into high paying jobs. And in the piece, um, I get into how that hasn't worked, but also, you know, how the George Floyd protests this summer um, have led to a bit of a shift in thinking away from this kind of dominant theory. And so, Becca, what are people actually doing about it? I mean, part of what, you know, I know you and your team have described is this is obviously moving from the fringes into the mainstream, into the main conversation. That's one of the pillars of everything we're doing with the Equality Summit. But what sort of actual movement are we seeing or is the entire point that we're not actually seeing anything? We're so we actually are seeing some changes. And I think the biggest thing is 
I know this is not going to sound as big, but it's a mindset shift. So before it was kind of like diversity is good. And now it's like, okay, racism is still happening. And so we need to do things to combat racism. I think we can add that to other isms that racism has been the focus um, for the summer for good reasons. So I think that's been a big shift because you do different things once you start thinking about it in terms of fixing racism as opposed to promoting diversity. And I think the biggest thing that I've noticed that's more tangible than a mindset shift is things that look very similar to and I would describe as quotas, um, which is what my first article was about. Which I remember that. That, <laughs> that was really great because I really th- thought about that. You know, does this is this what we need to do? Yeah, I think companies, although they are reluctant to actually call it that because they're very scared of the word for various reasons, they right. are saying, like, we are going to aim to have a certain number or percentage of black people or Latinx people in certain high-paying, high-power roles. And that is different. They have not done anything that aggressive before the Black Lives Matter protests. And I think it's things like that that might move the needle more, or at very least it's trying something different. And that's a big shift in the last couple of months compared to the last 30 years. Becca, one of the most provocative things, um, I, I'm going to steal your thunder a little bit, um, or at least let you steal your own thunder, uh, <laughs> is your opening anecdote from 2017 um, that is about Apple. Can you share that one? Because it's such a provocative way into the story. Yeah. So in 2017, the woman who was heading up Apple's diversity and inclusion department, she's speaking at a conference, and she said, in her remarks, she said, there can be 12 white, blue-eyed, blonde men in a room, and they're going to be diverse. And they're going to bring a different life experience and life perspective to the conversation. And she apologized for those remarks because, you know, people said, uh, you know, that's not really diversity. But it was revealing that, that the mission to get more women and minorities up and down the corporate ladder had really become diluted and had really become driven by this idea of we just need diversity of thought and experiences. And when you think like that, yeah, it's true. Like a certain, per, a, you know, white, blonde, blue-eyed man from New York City is going to be different than a white, blue-eyed, blonde man from somewhere else. But it does not has nothing to do with the original mission of getting more women and minorities higher up the corporate ladder. And that was Rebecca Greenfield overseeing all of our managing diversity coverage and Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber. So, Jason, coming up from our Equality Summit, we continue along this theme and this time about the failures of capitalism when it comes to diversity and inclusion in corporate boardrooms. That's right. My conversation with former Xerox chairman and CEO Ursula Byrne. She's got a new project all about creating more diversity on boards. It is very aligned with John Winkleried's work over at TPG. We'll have that conversation coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to continue with our equality theme this week, Jason. Of course, it's a deep dive in the issue and our summit. Absolutely. A summit you and I were both delighted to be a part of. And the conversation that I had, I really liked it. I have to say, Ursula Burns, she's a force, the former Xerox chairman and CEO. She joined me along with TPG co-CEO and partner John Winkleried. We're talking about boards, and we started talking about a new initiative that Ursula is getting underway. This started pretty simply and pretty, you know, with not a lot of ambition. It was the response to a lot of calls that I was getting and and my brothers and sisters, my black 
CEOs who were getting calls as well right after the George Floyd incident. And it was calls to say from other CEOs to say, we think we are doing things okay, but it seems like we may be missing something. Can you help me think through this situation, what's happening in the United States, what's happening all over the world? And I got probably 25 calls. Darren Walker from the Ford Foundation, Ken Chenault, we all got calls from other CEOs and business leaders asking for some insight. And one of the things that became clear was that they were calling us. They didn't have the resource at home that they could actually reach to. Clearly on their boards, they didn't have that resource. They could say, can you give me some insights that would be able to help me and, and my company, our company, get through this. After these levels of calls, myself and Darren and Gabby Sulzberger, a whole bunch of us were just together thinking and talking and saying, why don't we not become these point people of, here, you know, can you give me a call and get a help? Can, can we structure something that's, that's reasonable, that is a resource for companies to use and come to if they wanted to do something pretty simple? Because most of these calls were to us as business leaders speaking to CEOs. Could we actually start at the top and structure something that was to get every board in the Fortune 500, the Fortune 1000, Fortune 3000? to have at least one black director. Pretty straightforward. And no other, no, you know, no gun to your head, no threats, no, this is all about you doing what is, will be helpful for you and your company, particularly now, just do it as a natural, as a natural initiative. And it turns out that it then snowballed from there. The more people that we talk to, the more we realize that this is something that's good. We're not the only group doing this, this is not the only initiative, this is not the only movement happening, but it was something that we could do um, that was black led, three, you know, three black people, myself, two women, uh, myself, Gabby, uh, Darren, and some people around us as well. We have Teneo helping us. They are, they are helping us with numbers and with process and actually helping us build up a little bit more of a database. We have the Black Directors Initiative who's engaged. We have the Boule who's engaged. So there are a large number of people who actually are trying to work on this. We know maybe too many initiatives, but enough such that we can actually make progress on this one simple thing. One Black director on every company that has a board. Let's start with the 3,000. Then we went to, to try to finding out find out who has what. And it's interesting that the data is horrible. It's not well kept. Um, it's not an essential place. We couldn't, we couldn't, the way that we found out the data is to literally get the list of directors and look at the pictures and make an assessment. Now, right. how right. do we know if this person is black or not? So the second thing is about reporting. Can we get self-identification, the directors self-identify and get some idea of where we are? Because if we don't measure this and, and look at it, if companies don't measure it and look at this, we're not gonna make progress. And then the third right. plank is basically around support. Can we support, can we educate, can, can we be a resource to these companies and to these boards and to management teams, et cetera, um, to actually make progress on diversity as a total. We started with black, but it's not black only. We started with black because right. that's the moment that we're in. But we have, we have women diversity, we have Latina diversity, Latino diversity, there's diversity across the board. And so John, I wanna to turn to you because 
you and I spoke a year or so ago about some initiatives that you were undertaking largely around including women on the boards of the companies that you were invested in. You have since expanded that. I want to back up a little bit to understand and help the audience understand why do boards matter so much? Why is there so much focus on the board? It, it, it seems maybe a little bit obvious, but I want to put that question to you. Well, I think you know the, the boards um, are really critical in, in a number of different respects. I mean, in, a, in a private equity context, um, you know, we bring a lot of capabilities and talents to our companies to help navigate, to help build our businesses. Um, and our boards are an integral part of that. Um, you know, the private equity approach in uh, governance in private company situations is slightly different, but not, you know, it's not entirely different than public companies. Um, but in a private context, you know, we're trying to uh, invest in companies, create value. And one of the things that we do in particular at TPG, it's done across the private equity industry, but one of the things that we are very focused on as a firm and proud of is that we are, we're very engaged with our companies. And um, so I would say, if I, had a, if I had to boil it down, I would say engagement with our companies to, to help our companies grow, help our companies navigate problems um, on one hand. And on the other hand, um, I would say having an investor mindset around the table um, is often an important thing in terms of accountability and driving growth and, and uh, improving our companies. Um, and so quality of people that we have around our boards is paramount. And so a year ago when we got together and talked about this, uh, Jason, I think one of the things that we felt was really important was um, having uh, a group sitting around those tables that are adding value that are, um, that are diverse and inclusive um, and really uh, are focusing on bringing great talent to the boards of our companies. Um, so that we help drive and navigate the future. And um, I think as we talked about last year, we had we had launched an initiative that um, was focused initially on gender diversity, where we would bring uh, at least one uh, woman to the boards of all the companies that we either controlled or had great influence on. And that's TPG co-CEO partner John Winkleried, former Xerox chairman and CEO Ursula Burns, very much on the same page about where we go next. Yeah, absolutely. That entire conversation, by the way, can be watched by going to BloombergLive.com. Well, from changes in the boardroom to changes in our workplace because of the virus. What Siemens has been doing through this pandemic is... We hear from Siemens USA president and CEO Barbara Humpton. She gives us her take. This is Woodburn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. This week on our daily show, we caught up with the president and CEO of Siemens USA. She's Barbara Humpton. As you know, this is a company that has a wide lens at which to look at our world. Power generators, high tech, you name it. We talked about a lot of things, including COVID-19's impact on the company. What Siemens has been doing through this pandemic is serving the serving society as we've been built to do. One of the most important things was Siemens' capabilities in healthcare. Mm -hmm. our, our colleagues in Siemens Health and Ears 
have helped respond with additional testing capability, and now, most importantly, with antibody testing so that we can understand public health as the virus continues to spread. But it goes beyond healthcare. We're engaged in helping with facilities, um, ensuring that there's adequate hospital beds available, standing up new facilities in record time, helping manufacturers keep supply chains flowing so that we have enough PPE to meet our needs as we go. Overall, I would tell you Siemens is going to end up being an important partner for, for communities around the globe and here across the U.S., as, as we deal potentially with a second wave, and our goal is to help America stay open. Potentially a second wave. i got to ask you, though, how likely are you expecting that, especially with what we're watching over in Europe right now in the U.K.? Well, we know that everyone everywhere is having to pay a lot of attention to community health, and we've got tools to do that now, right? So expanded testing certainly makes a big difference, and we've also learned how to keep things open with appropriate strategies like physical distancing, et cetera. One of our businesses, Smart Infrastructure, actually has a whole program called Come Back with Confidence. We're rolling out technology into buildings to help the people who are managing those spaces keep their residents safe. And we're confident that that's going to be a major tool for us as we enter into the fall months. So, Barbara, one of the areas that we've been very focused on is what's happening in cities. And you alluded to this. And, And I know that you attended, I believe, the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And I want to understand what they're saying to you because the infrastructure that they have to maintain is critical as both a network, but also just for individual human beings. What can you tell us about what's happening on the ground as you talk to these folks who are very much on the front lines? Yeah, Jason, we were so interested in what's happening at the city level because this pandemic is hyper-local, right? It affects communities and, and communities have to deal with different circumstances. So we wanted to survey um, mayors, and we asked the Harris Poll uh, in concert with the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and we got great feedback from 124 mayors across 34 states across the United States, and it was remarkably consistent feedback. And what mayors are saying is they expect to see declines in their budgets. We're, We're all concerned about that, understanding the economic impact. Um, But they're also viewing investments in infrastructure as the most uh, the most positive way that they can be working in both the short term and the long term to support the economies, bring jobs back into their communities and and attend to health um, simultaneously. You know, I feel like we have been talking about infrastructure for so long. Barbara, do you feel like finally something will ultimately be done? Because, you know, it's like one of those things that actually both sides of the aisle agree that we should be putting money into infrastructure, you know, in Washington. And yet it doesn't seem to happen. You think it's a little bit different. You are actually seeing municipalities saying, yep, we got to do stuff. We've got to do things, Carol. And and so here's what I think we're going to see. First, we've seen both campaigns at the presidential level talk about infrastructure as being central to their agendas. Um, but, but more than that, this is going to take far beyond. I mean, before the pandemic, we were seeing something like a $2 trillion deficit in the kind of um, spending and in infrastructure that would be required to, this is data from the American Society of Civil Engineers. So we knew we were working, you know, an uphill battle at that point. 
what's going to be necessary at this stage of the game is to mobilize capital from every sector. So I truly believe that um, seeing not only government action, but private sector action mm-hmm. to be engaged in infrastructure improvement. So Barbara, in the few minutes that we have now, I just wanted to ask you, what's this been like as a leader? I mean, you have a massive organization <laughs> that you're responsible for. And I wonder, you know, now six months in, this isn't triage anymore. You know, we're having to make Make real decisions about how our companies are run, and I wonder how you've handled it and what you've learned. Well, great question, Jason. And we just discovered early on because we were so essential to so many segments of the market, it was necessary for us to, you know, basically pull our boots on and get out there and get working. Um, when we initially got started, about two thirds of our employees were able to work remotely, but that meant a third had to be out on the front line in harm's way. And that's Barbara Humpton, president and CEO of Siemens USA. Excited to catch up with her because, as you pointed out, Carol, they have a window into the local governments, the state governments, and really this infrastructure issue that we're going to have to tackle to battle this virus. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, lots of problems out there for CEOs to solve. And when it comes to all that ails the U.S., well, our next guest, there's a pretty easy fix. And Jason, it involves the number one billion. Or people. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So, Carol, straight up, I'm a fanboy of our mm-hmm. next guest. I've followed his work, and he delivered. Talking about Matthew Iglesias, he's the co-founder of Vox. He's got a new book. It's called One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger, and he is thinking big. The United States, major world power. We've been probably the most prominent country in the world for 100 years now, the world's largest economy, the world's largest domestic market. Uh, but China is up and coming on us. Uh, they're in purchasing power parity terms. Their economy is bigger than ours. There's a lot of tensions. You know, talk about TikTok. You can talk about PRC censorship of American movies. Um, and, you know, what do we want to do about this? And I think one obvious answer would be to go after the underlying source of Chinese strength, which is that they are such a large country. We could seek to grow our own population domestically, and that's both by being more open to immigrants. We are privileged to be a country that tens of millions of people around the world want to move to, and also by doing more to support Americans who want to have children. Uh, We have, on average, about 1.7 children per woman, uh, but the average woman says she'd like to have about 2.6 children. Men, slightly lower preferences, but also People don't necessarily care what we think. Um, And we don't do very much financially to let people have uh, the family life that they aspire to. We do no child allowance, unlike most countries. In most jurisdictions, we don't provide for preschool. Uh, We don't do much to help kids out during the summertime. Right now, during COVID, in large swaths of the country, we're barely even running public schools. Uh, So the idea here is focus on those two pillars of strength. Support families who want to have kids. Support immigrants who want to come here grow the population, stay number one forever. Okay, that 0.7 child is my favorite. I'm just going to say that (laughs) 2.7. Hey, listen, I'm one of seven kids. There were nine of us in our family. So we've done our part to get towards that 1 billion number. What's interesting is, though, and we talk about this a lot. um, I mean, Jason, you know, has several kids. And I just think it's not easy to have big families anymore. You talk about policy changes. I mean, we really have to change things dramatically in order to make it possible. 
you know, there's a lot of stuff on the policy front that would have to change. I mean, some of that is money. Some of it is housing policy, right? Uh, if you live in coastal areas, it's just it's really hard to get a big house. We don't build enough here. Uh, and some of it, though, is the culture, right? As family sizes have shrunk, expectations have changed. And if we go back in the other direction to start having two, three kids, maybe four in some cases more commonly, you know, then you start to see businesses that more cater to, to kind of family-friendly uh, models, things like that. So, you know, we've gotten to a point of thinking of children as if they're like pets, right? It's this kind of very expensive consumption luxury that some people want to indulge in and other people don't. And I think fundamentally that's the wrong way to think about it. Having and raising children is an important social function. Not everybody has to do it, but the people who do want to do it should be really supported by the larger society. And so... Matthew, and we're going to talk more about this. I only got about a minute left in this segment, and then we're going to do some news and come back. But I, I guess the, the thing that I would say just to tee this up and, and give you a minute, and then we'll talk about it some more, is it's not going great right now. Like, I mean, this is not a, a country uh, that you're like, hey, come on in. Like, things are going awesome. Like, be a part of this or like have more kids to be a part of it, not to be too cynical here. Yeah, I mean, it's true, you know, but it's paradoxical. On the one hand, this is a country that a lot of people still want to move to. Right? Yeah. We are investing incredible efforts, Trump is at least, in trying to keep people out. Uh, but we're having real problems, real political dysfunction that is undermining the strengths of America. And I think part of the way to get out of that atmosphere of dysfunction is to think about things that unite us as a country, right? Values that we have in common, mm -hmm. that some uh, of our rivals internationally don't have. And, you know, what is a project that we can embark upon? Well, we still disagree about things. We could talk about, you know, what's the right way to design financial supports for families. But if we can say, as we did during the Cold War, as we did during World War II, that, look, there's something we all stand for, right? That points away toward a more functional so, Matthew, we're going to move on, but I got to ask you, so what is the case for a bigger population here in the U.S.? Is it just a bigger consumer base, consumption base? What's what's the thinking that that's a game changer for the United States? You know, scale matters in international politics. It matters a lot, right? You look at a country like New Zealand or friends up north, Canada. Those are nice countries. They've got high living standards. They don't really count for anything on the world stage the way the United States does. America's leaders, you know, from George Washington to Abraham Lincoln uh, on through to the present day, have traditionally thought that, you know, America should be a beacon of freedom in the world and a bastion of liberal values throughout the world. And that means we need to grow as we have through the centuries, keep pace with the other countries out there. In economic terms, though, I think that growing our domestic market is also useful. We benefit from being the place, right? Entrepreneurs from all over the world, they know if you want to found like a great company, that this is a place to come, right? And so we want to let people come and keep doing that. But we also we want to grow, we want to maintain that status that you know, New York is not just a big city, it's the financial center of the world. San Francisco is the technology hub of the world. And that's because these big cities anchor a big country. Matthew, it's Canada calling, and they want to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a bone to pick. All right, so, Matthew, we're going to use the five or six minutes we have left to just ask you, what the heck is going on in national politics right now? You're seeing all the headlines we're seeing. You're trying to break it down. You've got a great podcast. Um, how do you make sense of it? How do you get your head around it and, and separate the signal from the noise here? 
You know, look, uh, right now we're having a very tough debate about the Supreme Court. Uh, but the fact is, Republican senators, they have the votes to seat a conservative replacement for Justice Ginsburg. They had the votes to block a replacement for Justice Scalia. Uh, the frustration Democrats are dealing with is that the Senate is skewed. You know, Nate Silver, the smart uh, polling wonks, they say there's about a seven-point Republican bias in the Senate. And it lets them get away with stuff that, frankly, Democrats couldn't pull off. Nevertheless, there's actually a pretty good chance that Democrats will win a majority this November because Donald Trump is is quite unpopular. So the interesting thing is, you know, if Democrats do manage to win, are they going to do anything, not just about the Supreme Court, but about the inequities that are sort of deeply embedded in our political institutions? Well, will any politician do (laughs) anything about what's deeply embedded in our institutions, right, Matthew? I mean... These problems that have come out because of the virus or what happened with George Floyd and and others, unfortunately, you know, they're not new. No, they're not new. And, you know, of course, you know, nobody likes to see uh, when when protests turn into riots, things like that. Mm. At the same time, you know, you want to tell people, look, work on persuasion, go vote, you know, pursue your remedies through, through the legal process. And if you have a political system that's completely unresponsive to that, right, if people who live in cities don't have representation in Congress, if members of Congress just don't do anything, no matter what the public's level of concern is, you know, that's how you get into a situation of, of social disorder. And I don't defend everything that's happened on every side there, but you you need to show people that progress is being made on big national problems. And so far, I mean, it's really not happening. So Matthew, I know we're meant to talk about your new book and we're celebrating it as we should. But, you know, I do think about in many ways how prescient your book, The Rent is Too Damn High, was in terms of what we have seen in this pandemic and how so much, as Carol alluded to, has been laid bare in terms of the inequalities. And so much of that, it feels like, is manifested in people's inability to just pay their bills. And we are debating that now, seemingly, around this question of, will there be more fiscal stimulus? Are there any reasonable, and by reasonable, I mean things that maybe policymakers can agree on remedies on that front at this point, given how clear it is that we have an issue here. You know, it's really tough. Republicans have been very intransigent about aid to state and local governments. Uh, The recent news that came in about tax revenue was actually pretty good. So it suggests maybe the need for aid is not quite as big as Democrats had thought it was. Uh, So if Republicans would say yes to a smaller number there, uh, Democrats would get what they want. Then money could go out to people, which, you know, Democrats have been fighting for. But also it seems like it would help Republicans at the election to get something done here. So, you know, I I, I never want to you never want to count on Congress doing anything. Uh, But the stars do seem to be aligned in the sense that, you know, both parties will be better off if they can get something done. On the other hand, you know, the fighting about Justice Ginsburg's seat is going to make Democrats really reluctant to do a deal now, more so than they were a week ago. So, Matthew, if there's one policy you could just do right now (laughs) that you think would have a really positive impact on the U.S., what would it be? You know, I think we should do uh, what Canada, who I was uh, knocking before, did under under Justin Trudeau. Oh, thanks. Now you like them, huh? Start, <laughs> yeah, start giving money to parents of young children. I yeah. think it's a great 
response to the emergency of the pandemic. This is a really tough time for parents, mm. uh, but it's good policy for the long term. And we definitely feel the gravity of his words about putting money into the hand of people who need a little extra, certainly in today's world. Matthew Iglesias, co-founder of Vox, journalist, author, his book, One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. You got to check out our podcast feed for our entire conversation with him. Loved catching up with him. Such a cool guy. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Stick with us. I'm Jason Kelly. So much more to come. I'm Carol Masser, including another story from our equality issue, a Virginia City's playbook for urban renewal, Move Out the Poor. Plus, back to the Equality Summit, maybe a voice you wouldn't expect to hear on Bloomberg Business Week. Carol's interview with actress and activist Alyssa Milano. And get ready to restock your pantries. We'll hear about that from the CEO of General Mills. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Plenty ahead for you in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Jason, we're going to hear from Mahindra Group's Dr. Anish Shah. He takes over the top spot at the company in April. We get lessons his company has learned during the pandemic. Plus, some lessons from General Mills CEO. That company, of course, based in Minneapolis. What's going on in that city, as well as what may be in your pantry coming up this fall? Plus, everybody experiences anxiety differently. For me, I get in a crisis mode that is very hard for me to break the pattern. Actress Alyssa Milano on her mental health struggles, something many of us can relate to because of the virus. First up, though, back to this week's equality issue of the magazine. We catch up with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber and Bloomberg News financial investigations reporter Caleb Melby about his story of Virginia City's playbook for urban renewal, Move Out the Poor. In Norfolk, Virginia, they've been looking at what to do with a series of uh, neighborhoods near their downtown that are uh, two-story public housing developments. And Opportunity Zones basically gave them the financing edge to finally uh, implement um, kind of like a raise and replace program where these uh, three um, predominantly black uh, and, and very poor public housing communities um, will be destroyed and replaced with um, some mixed-income, mixed-use properties. Um, Some of them will get to come back about one-third in the first phase of the people who live there now, but not everyone. Uh, The idea, according to the city, is to uh, decentralize poverty. Um, And the story was a great opportunity for us to look back at the history of programs like Opportunity Zones to see um, how they're used by cities time and again. And it turns out a lot of times it's, it's... situations just like this one. Yeah, and certainly important to tell as we try to understand. Joel, come on in. Joel Weber now with us. Um, Tell us about why this story just um, really resonated with you. Well, so this is uh, our equality issue. And, you know, we've basically tried to look at, especially America, through a a lens of not just equality, but inequality. And this one, I think, has really stuck out to us for a while. And and Caleb had raised his hands um, in the before times, if you remember those, (laughs) as an area of interest that he wanted to pursue. And and what was amazing with it and why I think a story like this is so important is because even from the before times, this is one of those topics and one of these areas of interest that still resonates. And if anything, what we've all lived through for the past six months and counting now only amplifies some of these disparities. And I think that's brought to light in the story 
um, Caleb, the thing I was going to ask you about, you know, this Norfolk specifically, more opportunity zones than any other city in, in Virginia. And clearly it's gone, um, you know, maybe maybe slightly awry of, of how opportunity zones have been conceived. But like, who's the who ends up winning here? It's an interesting question. Um, yeah, so there, there is a developer the city is partnering with, uh, Brinshore Development. They specifically specialize in exactly a project like this, um, public to private slash public conversions. They made a name for themselves doing this with the Cabrini Green Housing Project in Chicago. So, like, in a very simple way, obviously, it's business for them. Uh, but the city of Norfolk would tell you that they're winning. Right. That that as designed, the city does not work for them and they are going to design it in a way that is better for them. And the, and the really painful thing about any project like this is, is like then you have to ask yourself, well, who is the city and are the people who are leaving? Are they part of the city? Um, and that's something um, people in this community called St. Paul's are grappling with and um, what the politicians um, have been trying to grapple with in town as well. Well, and and Caleb, I do think about the body of work that you guys have have put together here. And, you know, we've had Opportunity Zone investors on this program, and we've seen it up close and personal here in New York City. I, I guess I come back to, and this is building on Joel's question, is this, you know, kind of people just kind of being pardon the pun, opportunistic about a law that kind of allows them to sort of make money even though it's not in the spirit uh, of the law, or is this bad law? Well, that's a really great question, and you're right. There's there's investors here, too. I neglected to mention those here on Bloomberg Radio. Um, uh, uh, Go figure. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. Um, look, Opportunity Zones, were specifically designed to have very few, basically non-existent guardrails, because other programs, enterprise zones uh, and empowerment zones in the 90s had a lot of them. And investors and local leaders complained that like they couldn't make matches work because it was too restrictive. So Opportunity Zones was specifically incredibly expansive uh, with, with a generous capital gains tax break and no real particular rules about like what exactly... Uh, you, you know, you, you had to build with those investment dollars so long as it was going into these communities. So, yeah, our reporting has focused a lot on, um, uh, uh, you know, some what may be outliers, right? We don't know because there's no actual public disclosure right. for the program. So we don't, we don't, we actually can't measure in any way whether all of the opportunity zone money looks like Norfolk um, or looks like, say, New York, which we reported on before, mm. or, or if or if there's some more like kind of locally minded uh, investing dollars going in as well, because there's there's no reports from from the Treasury Department one way or the other on that. That was Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber and, of course, star reporter Caleb Melby. He's been looking so closely at opportunity zones. And the big question, as we just heard, is really one of transparency, Carol. That's so true, Jason. All right. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, a view of the pandemic from a global conglomerate. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. 
Welcome back to the show, Carol. We do continue to hear about how COVID-19 is really changing the way companies do business. That's for sure, Jason. And we got a really great perspective from Dr. Anish Shah. He's currently Deputy Managing Director and Chief Financial Officer of the Mahindra Group. We caught up from Mumbai. This is a company that has certainly a global view of the world. We kicked off our discussion, though, as you might guess, talking about COVID-19. The impact has been significant on us as well as everyone around us. Uh, We saw the month of April essentially wiped out in terms of revenue as a lockdown was declared in India towards end of March. And uh, since then, things have come back actually very well, uh, much better than what we expected. There are a number of lessons from this as well. And this, in my view, will position us stronger going forward. So while COVID is unfortunate and we do hope that things do get better soon. Uh, It is also teaching us lessons about how not to just survive, but how to thrive, how to deal with uncertainty. And uh, that will make us stronger. Well, that's so interesting that you say that. And I do think a lot of CEOs, it's interesting, go back to March, I feel like no one wanted to talk to us because there was so much uncertainty. Nobody had visibility. And then we all realized we're all in the same boat together. And so, you know, people have been talking about what they're facing, CEOs specifically. I am curious in terms of risk mitigation, what have you learned as a result of the virus when it comes to risk mitigation at your company? What we've learned is we've got to, as leaders, start being able to look around corners and be able to look at various scenarios and plan for them. We talked about a VUCA world many years ago, and that in many ways is an understatement. So the world has just gotten a lot more volatile and uncertain since then. And we have to be able to plan with scenarios, take options, take certain bets that we can double down on if a certain scenario plays out. Taleb talked about black swans. And he's talked about COVID not being a black swan. He said this is something that could have been predicted, in fact, hadn't been foreseen. So it's not a black swan in that sense. But Talib also talked about Mm anti-fragility and about how people and organizations can thrive in a crisis and can grow stronger in a crisis. So I think this is something that's teaching us now as to how do we do that? Uh, And you're right, Carol, as we looked at March, things looked really bleak. And everyone was wondering what's going to happen, where is liquidity, how are we going to survive? And uh, as we look at the last few months, I think we have survived. I think we have come out stronger. And uh, it's really about the scenario planning. We have to change old paradigms. Just-in-time was a paradigm that we had in manufacturing. It's now just-in-case. Uh, And there's a whole different set of things that come in as a result of it. Well, it's interesting, too. And I think about, you know, you're in 100 different markets. You have, you know, about 250,000 employees or more around the world. Um, I do wonder, how do you keep your companies, your businesses, your values uh, and standards at the level that you want them to be, that you need them to be in all of those different markets, especially in the face of such stresses as the virus? I think that essentially comes from Our foundation, um, our founders, when they set up the company in 1945, actually had uh, published um, something in the Times of India, the leading newspaper in India. And uh, they essentially published the culture, uh, they talked about the culture and the values of the company 
that they wanted to instill in the company when they set it up. And those values have stayed with us for the last 75 years. So this is about how we've been set up, the inherent values in the company. And that's what our leaders have imbibed. So one thing that we saw through the crisis that was very heartening for us is leaders across all our businesses um, found different ways to help the community. They came up with what are different things that we can do. And we'll talk about some of them as we go along. But uh, that's something that comes to them inherently, not because it's something that the society expects or that we have to do. That's just who we are. I asked you about optimism when we kicked off this discussion. Um, and I, and I, I do wonder, Anish, I'm looking at some of the numbers in terms of India, the virus specifically. I'm looking at uh, 54 million cases of the virus, more than 86,000 deaths. Those are tough numbers. I mean, we had pretty tough numbers too here in New York, and it's, it's kind of staggering. It makes you stop. It makes you rethink things. Um, I asked you about optimism. Has the optimism, though, in general eroded in India or at your company? Uh, the optimism has not eroded. I feel that people are looking at how do we get past the next few months. Uh, but overall, I would say the growth fundamentals in India are very strong. The numbers in many ways are not surprising because if you look at the population density in India, it's far higher than that in the U.S. and higher than most places in the world. If you look at a city of Mumbai with 20 to 25 million people, many of them very tightly packed together. Uh, these numbers in many ways are lower than what one would expect here. And as we look at some surveys, we also see some level of herd immunity that's starting to come into play just based on numbers in Mumbai. So despite the numbers, uh, the economy has opened up reasonably well. Mm. Rural India has been a very strong bellwether and it's really leading the rest of the economy forward. Urban India has suffered, largely because of the lockdowns. But we're starting to see things open up there. And uh, I would say that things are difficult, so I'm not going to downplay that. But at the same time, as we look at three to five to ten years ahead, there is a lot of optimism at Mahindra in terms of India as well as our own growth. Anish, what do you feel like comfortable in terms of predicting visibility? I mean, that's the, the other thing that we feel like but, you know, individuals, companies have said, we don't have any visibility for the rest of this year. We don't even know about visibility for next year. Meantime, you've got at least the U.S. Central Bank. They're talking about they have visibility enough, at least at this point, to say we're going to keep rates really low. What kind of visibility do you feel comfortably talking about? Is it till the end of the year? Is it till next year? Or is it not? Or, or, or do you not really feel like you have, have any? You know, it's very different across sectors. Yeah. Difference is dramatic. So let me give a few examples. Our farm equipment business, coming out of April with almost zero sales, had a year-over-year growth in May of 2%, which we had not expected. We would have been very happy with uh, a degrowth of 30 or 40%, and we would have said, that's great, we are getting back on track. But we had a 2% year-over-year growth. That was Dr. Anish Shah, Deputy Managing Director, CFO of the Mahindra Group, and you can hear that full conversation, in-depth view of the world. That's in our podcast feed. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, another global leader weighs in on what's ahead when it comes to the virus, what's ahead when it comes to the global economy. Talking about the CEO of General Mills. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're back here on Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser along with Jason Kelly. Delighted to bring you some of the conversations we had on our daily radio show from top leaders who, Jason, as we know, continue to deal with so much, the pandemic and a lot more. Well, that is certainly the case for General Mills. We caught up with the CEO, Jeff Harmoning. They released earnings this week, but we had to start by talking about not just what's in your pantry, but what's been going on in his backyard of Minneapolis since the summer. As a community, it's it's been a tough summer here in in the Twin Cities, but we're looking to rebound and rebuild. And General Mills has certainly been a part of it, as have I. Looking, you know, starting with police reform and and CEOs really backing that here in the Twin Cities. We have a number of Fortune 500 companies, and we're all kind of rowing in that direction. And at the same time, trying to rebuild our city, both physically in terms of the neighborhoods that um, that need it, but also our you know our education system and how that works, and opportunities for for people of all colors. And so, while it has been a, a tough summer, what I can tell you is the pen, people of Minneapolis, all mm-hmm. people of Minneapolis are working hard to create a more just and racially equal uh, city. And if the, I think that we can do that. And Jeff, you are, listen, one of the individuals who has seats at the table, right, to really help facilitate change. And I do wonder, do you think something is different this time around? Because we have certainly had lots of conversations with leaders like yourself, CEOs, uh, and heads of other institutions where, you know, we talk about that there has been so much talk for a long time, but nothing has really substantially changed. It's not just, well, we woke up this year and we're like, oh my God, look at all these problems. They've been around for decades. Is there something different though this time around? Well, there there certainly needs to be something different this time around, and I suspect that there is. And it's it's really the invo- the involvement of the business community. I I think you see a differential. It certainly is for General Mills as we look to build on our our history of inclusion, uh, particularly in terms of education outcomes and in terms of representation, supporting minority owned businesses. Um, we're building on what we have done, and I see other Twin Cities companies doing the same. And so I think what's different this time around is that. The fact that there is um, racial bias and injustice is, is undeniable, and the business leaders are getting involved in a way that at least I haven't seen in my 25-year career. Yeah, certainly yeah, coming out and saying different things than we've heard before. Well, and clearly cities like yours, and you know, we spent some time with other CEOs in your city and, and the president of the University of Minnesota, Joan Gable, as well. I know that they're marshalling a lot of the business community because it is such a vital part of Minneapolis and, and the Twin Cities. Well, let's talk about the business because it's obviously yes. been a very different time for all CEOs. Your packaged food business, I I would imagine, is dramatically affected by the pandemic. Tell us what you've seen sort of by the numbers and and where it goes from here. So what we've seen for General Mills is that uh, the demand has really surged for for our business because 85% of our business is food served at home and only 15% of food served away from home. And so we have had the challenge of, of rising to the occasion of producing significant amounts more food than we had before. Our revenues were up double digits in our fourth quarter, which ended in May, and up another double digits in our first quarter of this fiscal year, which just uh, we just announced today. And so increasing production by that much has been a big challenge. But I'm really proud because General Mills and the rest of the industry has really risen to meet the moment. And We've done it, I think, because the, our company, our people feel uh, that not only are we serving the world food, the food the world loves at this point, but really the, the food that it needs. And interestingly, um, I just I just got you know we just got done talking about our first quarter results. 
our, our number of accidents in our plants were down 41% in our first quarter. Hmm. And we had a presenteeism rate of 98%. And so even amidst, you know, all the, the, the challenges that the pandemic creates, it's actually brought out the best in General Mills employees. And they're really proud of the work they're doing. So, and I do wonder about trends, like the demand for at-home food. I know you, I think you guys have come out and already said that you expect it to remain above pre-pandemic levels. Do you fear, though, it will start to die down as people start seeing how much food they've already stocked up, essentially? Well, we, we, we're pretty confident that food demand, demand for food at home is going to remain elevated for an extended period of time. Part of that is, is that uh, reason is that people have mostly eaten through the things that they've had in their pantry. So there isn't actually, there's not actually a substantial amount of pantry loading of food at home anymore. Mm. In addition to that, you know, what's driving the increase in demand are people are not inter- as interested in going to restaurants, eating indoors right now. And we're approaching a season where a lot of people, especially in the northern part of the U.S., would generally eat at restaurants indoors. Combine that with two other factors I think people don't think about as much is that many people are not going back to the offices. Yeah. And so they're eating, especially breakfast and lunch, they're eating at home now instead of away. And then finally, uh, the economy is not going to be in great shape even once we have this pandemic resolved. And in times of recession, consumers tend to go to more at-home eating. They did in the last recession. We think they will here, too, because it's a cheaper alternative to eating out. I know you didn't give any kind of, you know, it's hard to give kind of far out um, forecast at this point. But what you just said, do you expect 2021 to be a d- tough year economically? And we just have about 40 seconds here. I think I think t- fiscal 21 will be a tough year economically. And, and I think for us, that's going to mean we're going to continue to need to produce a lot of food because I think at home demand is going to remain strong. And that's General Mills CEO Jeff Harmoning joining us from Minneapolis. And Jason, of course, what we eat clearly contributes to our physical health, but increasingly we are also worried about our mental health. Actress Alyssa Milano, she takes up that part of the equation from our Equality Summit. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Our next guest is someone who has allowed us into her personal life before. And Jason, she did so again at this week's Bloomberg Equality Summit. She talked about her mental health struggles, something so many of us are dealing with today because of the pandemic and how she is speaking out to help others. We talked about that along with her having COVID-19 months ago and continuing to have symptoms. This is Alyssa Milano. Some days I feel back to normal and other days it's like I have a recurrence of Uh, the acute symptoms. I was sick with the acute illness for five weeks in in March and April. Um, And I've just, I have not felt back to back to normal since then. Uh, Some days I feel okay, but really it's just this like, this, this incredible um, exhaustion. It, It feels like I have no motivation to physically move my body. And I don't know if that is some sort of mental protection or if it's my body trying to regenerate or or what is happening but i have shortness of breath heart palpitations my hair is still falling out and um uh, i have this the worst part i have this ringing in my ears that is driving me bonkers so um so yeah not great it's been it's, it has not been great. And it's interesting because of, of all my friends, I have quite a few friends that, that were sick. 
there's maybe one out of 12 that feels completely back to normal. The rest are just having these, these long hauler symptoms. And um, so, you know, we find great comfort in each other, knowing that, that there are other people out there going through the, the same thing. Um, um, and that makes a really big difference. And I think that that makes a big difference in our mental health in, in general, just to know that there are other people, um, you know, that go through similar things that, that, that we do. Well, this is why we're so grateful that you're talking with us and talking about your own mental illness and talking about anxiety. And I want to take a few steps back because from what I understand, just doing a little bit of research and, and watching some different things and some interviews you've done, you've dealt with anxiety for a long time. Is that fair? Oh, yes. Yes, but I don't know that I had labeled it as anxiety, mm-hmm. but my earliest, my earliest recollection and, and everybody experiences anxiety differently. For me, I get very, um, uh, I get in a crisis mode that is very hard for me to break the pattern. Um, and basically it gets to the point that my brain just thinks that's the way it's supposed to be functioning in fight, flight or freeze. Um, and I should mm-hmm. also say is when we're, when we're talking about um, issues that affect the brain, um, you know, we really prefer to talk about mental health, not mental illness. I think once we start calling it mental illness, um, that's when the stigma um, comes with that. And, and also to try to sort of be conscious of, of the phrases that we use um, as far as like, I, I actually just did it and I caught myself, you know, that the ringing right. in my ears was driving me bonkers. Like all of those things, all of those natural um, ways of describing things of the past, we sort of have to break out of, I think, in order to in order to break the stigma. But my earliest recollection of being in crisis mode was um, I lived in South Africa for three months in 2000. And it Mm -hmm. was, you know, only nine years after apartheid was abolished. And I volunteered in a township in a children's hospital. And I was very strong while I was there. When I came home and had to assimilate, like, that part of me um, that volunteered and and dedicated my time to helping other people and trying to to, uh, assimilate that with the the person that lived in Beverly Hills and drove a BMW, um, I had a very hard time getting back and getting acclimated. And, um, and I went through about, uh, and at this time I didn't, I didn't know, but I would say four or five months of complete and total panic, anxiety. Um, and for me, I have generalized anxiety disorder that also, and I also get panic attacks. So what that basically means is my base level of anxiety is almost in a panic attack mode. And then right. my panic attacks are sort of on top of that. Um, so, yeah. So I remember, like, I went to my general practitioner and I, I wasn't even in therapy, which, by the way, if there was anyone that needed to be in therapy. It's, it was a child <laughs> actor that, that, that yeah. survived, right? Um, but was there and, any uh, was there anybody around you, was there anybody around you saying you know wait a minute Alyssa this isn't right You're, you know you shouldn't feel this way chronically 
and that would step in? I mean, my mom was, well, I have a lot of the same characteristics as my mother. She, um, she suffers from anxiety. She also has dyslexia. Mm -hmm. Um, I have dyslexia as well. So she was, yes, she was encouraging me to, to go, but I went to my general practitioner and they put me on a, you know, a very generic antidepressant, which made me, you know, gain 15 pounds. And, and that was like a whole other issue. And plus I was working 80 hours a week. I was working on charm. And so it was very hard to take that sort of break and sort and and self-care. I want to bring you forward a little bit, because from what I understand, it really became, I guess, very debilitating after the birth of your son, Milo. Tell us a little bit about what happened, right? You came home and, and I know there were some complications or some stress just before he was delivered. Tell us what happened. So, um, so I was in labor for 18 hours. I pushed for three and a half hours and, um, he, he, he came to us via, um, C-section. Um, the birth itself was, and the labor itself was very traumatic. Um, not to get too graphic, but when a woman says she pushes for three hours, it is with the help of, of nurses who are basically trying to manipulate the baby while it's still inside of your body to get the baby out. So for me, it felt incredibly invasive um, and traumatic. And I think that it triggered my sexual assault trauma. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I was sitting there and I was thinking, why does this feel like such a violation? Why is this does not feel, and I don't think women talk about this um, at all. And you're not in control and it's, it's right. You're not in control. It's, it's a very tough situation, very heated. And there's lots of people coming in the room and plugging things in. And like, you know, I used to, my mom used to joke, like if they had a car in there, they'd be backing that in just to like, (laughs) so, so, so that I think is what triggered my postpartum anxiety. And then I had, um, I, I felt better my milk came in. I felt better. I had this beautiful little delicious baby. And, um, and it was, it was when he weaned, he weaned himself very suddenly without any like going down. My hormones were out of control. And, um, that's when my anxiety started to come back again was when my hormone level dripped uh, dipped after he weaned, which was at 10 months. You eventually found yourself in the ER room, right? At, you know, in the wee hours of the morning. Yes. But before that, the part of this story that I think is almost the most important is I went into my OBGYN, um, when this first started happening and she looked at me and with a straight face, she said to me, well, it's a big life change. Go for a hike. Try to find some self-care time. And yeah. by the way, she said to me, you're 38 years old. So if you want to have another baby, we should probably start thinking about that. And I remember so clearly just being in tears. And I looked at her and I said, I'm not sure I want the baby that I have right now. Mm, and you're talking right. to me about another baby. So I felt completely like the, 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 healthcare that I was getting 
was totally not where it should have been. Uh, so I would just go to the emergency room. I would go to the emergency room every time I felt like I couldn't deal. Well, and one of the times that you went, you actually had yourself committed, right? For three days. I did. I did. I. Um, Why did you do that? Uh, Why did you do that? Why did you know you needed to do that? So at the time I was working on Mistresses, which was a, a show on ABC, and I was still functional and I was still able to learn my lines and show up for work. And the thing about mental health and when you're struggling with mental health Ill, uh, um uh, issues is you can't see it. And that's actress and activist Alyssa Milano, a conversation, as I sort of jokingly said earlier, <laughs> that you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear on Bloomberg Business Week, but a reminder, part of our Equality Summit, of how holistically we really need to be looking at all of these problems. Great interview, Carol Masser. Well, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And thank you for that, Jason Kelly. I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to check out our extra podcast, Abigail Disney, documentary filmmaker, philanthropist. She's also an activist and proponent for closing the wealth gap. She is calling on companies to offer respect, dignity, and a living wage to everyone who works for them. And for that type of interview and so much more, catch our daily show Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. You can also watch us on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And of course, always check out our podcast. So many in-depth interviews there. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts, also at Bloomberg.com. And the magazine, it is on newsstands now. The Equality Issue, it is worth a deep read. We'll see you right back here next week at the same time. Have a great weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg.